Welcome to the Parent-Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. My name is Lisa Hunter-Ryden, and I'm the mother of a son who's been recovering from a neuroimmune disorder with autistic symptoms under the care of Dr. Kendall Stewart. Dr. Stewart has introduced us to a new concept named the Coordinated Care Model, for which the parent and physician team work together in this journey to heal our children. The topic for today's show will be the diagnosis and treatment of pathogenic infections in autistic individuals. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Very good. Thank good. you. Great. And I want to welcome all of our radio listeners. The topic of pathogenic infections is very important because children on the spectrum often have one or more of these infections. I know we've seen many of these in our son over the years Absolutely. and as you've been treating him. And it can be a myriad and a range of symptoms. Um, we'll go into those later. But it's um, one of the things that you've always said to me is it's important to treat the source of the symptoms and um, the source and not the symptoms. Right. And there's some key areas that you're really the expert on. So I'd like to have you take us through some of the areas that um, need to be addressed for the pathogenic infections. Okay, sure. Well, um, the problem is when we deal with these uh, children is that and the base foundation and why we've kind of decided to call these issues neuroimmune disorders is because really we initially started worrying about these children because they were neurological issues in these children. And then once we started looking at them close enough over the past oh, 10 to 15 years, and some people looking much longer than that, we've uh, started to realize that there was a whole myriad of problems that can affect uh, different children different ways. And those can include everything from gut issues uh, all the way through infections in the nervous system, uh, infections uh, in the bloodstream, um, possible uh, results of infections uh, causing behavioral problems, and certainly a skewing of the immune system that really has led to these problems. And so what I mean by skewing is what's been so important for me to understand over the past five years at least is for us to really recognize that the primary deficit in most of these children is an immune deficit. And from what we're learning from almost all the research uh, that uh, revolves around the clinical appearance of these children is that we have children that are immune compromised, at least in one part of their immune system. And when you deal with an immune system that's compromised, you obviously are going to then have an immune system that's really incapable of dealing with pathogens of all types um, uh, from at, like a normal person, I guess. And so really, um, when you deal with pathogens, um, if you think you're not dealing with them and you're dealing with a kid well, on the spectrum, uh, you're probably just fooling yourself because you are going to be dealing, if we look deep enough, into the issue of having various pathogens, including bacteria, fungus, uh, parasites, uh, viruses in particular, uh, in my, my area of expertise. And... Um, and certainly even a potential increased risk from possibly uh, cancer and other agents like that. And I know a lot of people don't talk about that, but you have to keep that in the back of your mind. So when we deal with that, we have to kind of understand the base foundation of why these kids got into trouble. Now, in an ever-evolving world, and my patients know it very well, I'm sure you know it as well as anybody, is yeah, that absolutely. I'll tell you next time I see you, I'll have something new for you. Mm -hmm. Because... This world is ever-evolving, and our knowledge base is increasing exponentially. And in general, the way the current state of thinking that we have is that we have a group of children that the majority of them is for genetic foundation, meaning that there is a, a genetic reason that they have developed an immune dysfunction syndrome. 
And that genetic reason is typically one of poor vitamin delivery or modification and one of uh, dopamine uh, uh, sensitivity or dopamine inability, or excuse me, the inability to break down dopamine properly and modify the immunological controls or the, excuse me, the hormonal controls over the immune system. So what we have to understand is that um, the ultimate goal from today's perspective in us treating pathogens is for us to actually fix the immune system and let the body deal with the pathogens. So I want to say that up front because I don't want to say that on the end because in the past, the way I think a lot of us have approached it is we've identified pathogen after pathogen after pathogen and we've attempted to try to kill those pathogens back and actually you'll be killing pathogens till the cows come home. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because on every uh, message board that I'm on and uh, group and email with my friends, um, that's really our topic of discussion most of the time is how you kill viruses, how you kill yeast, um, base, you know, and everything from the prescription anti-infectives to the herbal remedies. Sure. And sometimes when you're a parent in this journey, you get so overwhelmed thinking, gosh, are we always going to have to be doing that killing of the pathogens? Are, are these kids ever going to get healthy? Right. And, and I will tell you that the answer is ultimately, if we don't fix the immune system problem, the answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with pathogens is you can't escape them. We all have them in us. That's right. just the way it is. We've all acquired chicken pox in one form or another. Now, I prefer that you don't acquire that through a vaccination at one year of age, but we've all caught in chicken pox. We've all been exposed to numerous pathogens, and many of them are housed in our body all the time, especially in the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. So, the purpose of our immune system is not to keep us from having pathogens, it's to control them. And so what's really happening in most of these children is that the primary cell in the immune system that is responsible for killing of pathogens and controlling them is called a T-cell. And I think it's been very well proven, and certainly in our patient population, yeah, we see this every single day, that we have a significant alteration in T-cell function among these children. Now the T-cells are the killer cells. And so they kill viruses, bacteria, fungus, and cancer. And there's several different variants of them, some called natural killers or CD4 and CD8. Don't okay. get caught up too much in the, the lingo of what each one does. Um, but if you have a T-cell dysfunction, what you really need to understand uh, from, to understand your child is that when the T-cells don't work well, the body always has a fail-safe mechanism. And that's another group of cells called the B-cells. And those B cells then are, um, make up the difference in the T cell dysfunction. So when T cells are not working well, the body has a mechanism to take B cells, which are our allergic inflammatory cells, and actually send them through the roof to make them hyper-aggressive. And that's frankly why so many of these kids develop allergies to foods and to environmental allergens, possibly even uh, allergies to even hormones and other things if, we're, if you really want to talk out of the box. And frankly, it also gives them a very aggressive inflammatory pattern. Now, the reason I'm leading into that issue with talking about inflammation is because I'm going to go back to my base premise you know, I see lots of kids uh, who have been treated very well by other f physicians, um, certainly, you know, Dan physicians and physicians who are expert in spectrum disorders. But the one simple mistake that I typically see in other physicians treating this problem 
is one of very uh, uh, simplistic mistake that we've forgotten. Without handling inflammation, you're not going to cure or help heal anything in the body. So the problem with pathogens, whether it's yeast, whether it's bacterial, whether it's inflammation in the gut, whether it's mm -hmm. inflammation in the nervous system, if you do not stop inflammation, you have not taken the first step to healing anything. So the analogy I love to use, and you probably heard it before, mm -hmm. you hurt your knee, your knee swells up, you keep walking on it, it stays swollen, how well is it going to heal? And the answer is invariably it won't very well. Well, it's the same thing when we're dealing with the gut or we're dealing with the nervous system or we're dealing with blood vessels or anything else in the body. If you don't stop inflammation, then you cannot, you cannot heal. Now, so in general, the way that our approach has really changed as opposed to trying to kill and kill and kill and kill. So if we have yeast active, for instance, we don't just keep bouncing around and treating them on long-term nystatin, long-term niflucan, et cetera. We have to understand that we have to accomplish two things at once. One thing is we have to knock back any pathogens that are specific and active in that child. So I do think the analysis of uh, pathogenic activity in the body when you initially see the child is, is important. And once we've established the analysis and which pathogens we're dealing with, we do have to direct care toward them. But you can't do that and just keep doing it for years and years and years and expect your child to improve. Now, they will improve some, mm -hmm. but, but you typically will not get them improved to the, the status that you want them to. So at the same time that you're trying to, to analyze this pathogenic milieu, um, uh, I guess is a good word to put, put it in, um, you have to be also analyzing where is the immune system deficits and what status is the immune system in. And if we try to accomplish those simultaneously, we're much more effective because we have to kill things much. Um, well, we kill them much quicker and we get rid of them and the body takes over for us. And I will admit that before we came to see you for the first time, I had the kid that I thought was never sick. I mean, Jake right. just was never ill. And, you know, kids would have, in his classroom, would all be sick, and he would be the one standing kid that never had a, a missed day of school. And when we first came in for that appointment, um, we talked about this in the immune system. I thought, well, you know, he's probably got, I think my son has a really good immune system because he's never sick. Right. And you explained there's a reason for that. <laughs> well, you know, these kids are either always sick or never sick. Right. And the funny thing is, you know, immunoglobulin deficiency, which is the B cells, is also seen in a lot of these kids. Now, when you have an immunoglobulin deficiency, these kids are always sick, okay? They, they get bacterial infections everywhere. And so that's a pretty easy one for people to say, oh, yeah, he's just got a terrible immune system. But when you have a T cell deficiency, um, the T cells are the initiators of killing. And the T cells and B cells are, are meant to work together. And when T cells don't respond, you don't act like you're sick even though the infection is in you what gets in you and infects you is not what makes you sick it's your body attacking mm -hmm. what's in you that makes you sick and so these kids the kids i really worry about are the kids that are never sick or the kids that are always sick are always the ones that throw up red flags for me and you validated that when you did um cd4 cd8 counts on him Correct. and i was really in disbelief when i saw the results i thought right. wow i can't believe this condition exists well, you know, and that's what frustrates some parents because then as we start waking the T cells up, 
So let's say that we have a child who really has the classic genetic pattern of vitamin D deficiency and methylation abnormalities with their B vitamins, and we start putting those back in, we, we go through some trying times for parents, and we have you have to be educated on it. You have to warn the parents because um, when all of a sudden the immune system wakes up and says, oh my goodness, I have not been cleaning my house for a long time, it will go to cleaning its house pretty aggressively. And when the immune system gets set off, uh, sometimes you can't really stop it too much, and there'll be a downtime in that regressive healing phase that uh, really is a um, an exciting time for a doctor because we see the immune system starting to work right, a very disappointing and stressful time for parents. And I can tell you, uh, I've talked to parents that have left your practice because they um, saw that regression mm -hmm. and they thought, oh gosh, she's getting worse, not right. better. And um, and I've been through that. I mean, the first three months when we started treating Jake, sure. we're, we're filled with a lot of regression. And not not so much speech or um, of skills he had gained, but more behaviors. Sure. And I, I think I was calling your office at least twice a week saying, this, something's not right, something's not right. You kept saying, hang in there, hang in there. His, you know, he, the, he, the immune system is starting to do what it needs to do. Right. Well, we're starting to get a lot better at informing yeah you know it's it's you know you learn through the more patients you see you have to adapt and you have to learn to to warn and sometimes you try to warn and <laughs> you still don't understand how bad but it's but i've be. had to you know and i've also um been telling some of my friends you know you will see a regression sometimes for weeks sometimes for months it's not going to be an immediate quick fix especially right. for a child like my son who was much older when we came started treatment uh, i say older because some parents now are starting treatment at a year and a half, two years old, and right. we had an older child. But, um, you know, it was one of those things that um, I think he had been in that state for a long time. Sure. And so I, I ex ex would expect the healing to to be long. Right, and, you know, we, we always have to remember, and I'll, I'll caution you before we talk about each of these agents, that pathogenic agents, but um, we also have to remember as doctors um, that the body doesn't tolerate um, aggressive change. It likes slow, methodical change. And so the biggest mistake I made when I was um, less experienced in treating these children, especially when we're treating viruses and yeast, is that if we push too hard, we're going to set the child for, into a tailspin because of either the, the die-off Herxheimer's-type reactions or from just the overwhelming amount of effort the immune systems and the body's having to put out to either uh, deal with the... Um, the dead uh, infectious particles or the immune stimulation from rupturing these these agents that uh, we we had to learn to be cautious so if anything I can tell you that in from a killing perspective because uh, I become less aggressive because I'm now much more confident in the ability for me to modify the immune system to normal mm -hmm. and um, you know if you kill an infectious agent back and you don't fix the immune system as soon as you start killing it it's going to come back and so you just get caught in this vicious cycle so the, the key in our hands to understanding and fixing these children really is the immune dysfunction and theoretically it's not how we treat now but theoretically if we could just fix the immune system itself it may be able to deal with most of this it's on its own mm -hmm. now the the genetic foundations of these problems is much more far-reaching than we ever expected. When you start looking at methylation of B vitamins and delivery to 
specific structures, you're going to find it going into neurotransmitter function, into um, lipid metabolism, into glucose metabolism, into toxic metabolism. And so, uh, you know, you have to be a pretty versed doctor, I think, to deal with these things. And actually, unfortunately, you have to be a very well-versed parent. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, thankfully, in my practice, I'll tell you that I, I'm, I'm blessed with those very well-versed parents. Um, but uh, we just have to understand that uh, the foundations still are based in genetics, and and if we can really get to the immune system function, we're going to be much better off. And we're we're still trying to understand that. I know I've talked to a lot of parents that have said, uh, like us, that they have a history of immune disorders in their family, the mom or the dad or both. Uh, with me, it's allergies, and a long history before that with my grandmother had allergies, and um, so. What you're, you know, I, I do have a question for you, and I know it's probably a question to other parents' mind, but none of us really want to think that our child was born this way and born sure. that they would enter this world and then have all these toxins and triggers with pathogens and and just become really immunocompromised. And a lot of us do believe there was an external agent, an environmental agent. And now there's a lot of work being done in the research field in epigenetics. You know, what's the genetic predisposition coupled with the environmental trigger? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, my classic statement to my new patients is that um, I used to falsely think that any child could develop this disorder. And it appears that that might be a possibility, but it's a rarity, uh, meaning that clearly there's a set of genetics that predisposes you to the potential to develop this. And that's why we've seen that. Uh, well, since I was a kid in the 1970s, there was ADD, ADHD, and autism too. This wasn't at the epidemic proportion that we're seeing right. it now. And so clearly the genetics were still there, but it requires then an inflammatory trigger to mm -hmm. set off the process and provide the immune system skewing right. that's necessary for the disorder to develop. And it's the skewing uh, of the immune system toward challenge that then puts it into imbalance and doesn't allow it to control these opportunistic infections. So I tell parents, you know, I've seen um, autism and spectrum disorders develop from uh, uh, neonatal surgery. I've seen it develop from uh, ICU stays for bad infections. I've seen it develop from trauma. I've seen it develop from uh, sicknesses of other types. And clearly I've seen it triggered from, you know, um, vaccinations. Um, really interesting case I just saw this morning as I saw a child who was 16 and uh, she was an Asperger's patient and um, had um, osteomyelitis of the ankle um, at the age of nine months and was perfectly normal up to that time and then after the osteomyelitis was a little bit off but not too bad but then you follow that with the vaccinations in the second year and all of a sudden uh, by the time you get to the end of the second year, mm -hmm. you've got a child who's developed Asperger's. So we have to understand that inflammation and triggering of this can be multifactorial and it's additive. Mm -hmm. Because each time we stress the immune system, we further skew that imbalance between the T cells and the B cells. And invariably, when you're dealing with anything you look at, you're looking at inflammatory markers. I don't care if you're looking at blood markers, whether you're going to be looking at bowel markers, whether you're looking at neurological markers, whether you're looking at objective neurological tests, you are seeing signs of inflammation. So it's the inflammation that overwhelms the development potential of that, uh, of the nervous system in general and the bowel uh, functionality too that just uh, 
uh, is too much for these kids to overcome. Yeah, sometimes you feel like we're just um, we're just trying to learn so much so fast. And you're right, as parents, it is really overwhelming at times. Well, um, so when we say pathogens, just for clarification, there's main categories, and um, I have a some some classes in microbiology in my background, so I understand these, but um, some people may not. So I'll just um, just talk about briefly the four categories that, and sure. and then I'll let you take briefly. the uh, <laughs> briefly, and then I'll let you take the ones that you uh, you want to talk about first. But uh, we have the fungal uh, pathogens, bacterial, parasitic, and viral. Um, my son Jake has had all of these at one time or another sure. uh, that we've discovered. And, um, but the one that I'd like to focus on first, just because I know you're the expert and can probably talk the longest about this area, is the viruses. And I know with Jake, at one time we did find he had um, three viral infections going on, uh, HHV6 and Parvo, and um, I think he even had the um, uh, varicella. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked before about the live viruses in the vaccines, right. not all of them, but some of them. So with that, um, I'd like you to explain why the viruses are so problematic um, with our kids. And if right. you can, talk about the herpetic viruses. Well, the reason that you know I'm even in this area um, really goes back to the, the fact that when you deal with the nervous system, there's not too many things that really can damage it and not too many things that... Uh, um, thank God, can um, infect the nervous system. Uh, clearly, um, when we're dealing with nervous system uh, inflammation from an infectious source, we almost always are dealing with viral infections. Now, the viral categories that tend to do that, certainly the herpes family is defined by that. And herpes are DNA viruses that are encapsulated and um, they are in every one of our nervous systems, um, and invariably we've all been exposed to all of them, whether we have a positive titer or not. And so we certainly focused on that from the beginning, and then there certainly appears to be significant evidence that rubella and also measles do infect um, the nervous system in general. And once you have uh, viruses that infect the nervous system, they're, we call them neurotrophic viruses, which means they tend to hide inside of nerves. They, they're going there on purpose. They're smart viruses. They're stealth viruses. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And what we mean by stealth viruses is that they're hiding in the, the nerves on purpose because there's really only two places in the body you can go where you can um, escape the immune system. One is inside of nerves. The immune system will not enter nerves themselves. Okay, then that doesn't mean we don't have microglia and astroglia in the brain that are essentially immune systems of nerves, but they won't enter inside of a nerve to damage it or else it'd kill us all, okay? And the second area is inside the immune system itself. So the reason we focused on that is because in our experience with immune cells, in particular T cells, and also with our experience in nerves, um, we knew that certain herpes viruses were inside of those nerves. Now, back in the 1980s when I was working with herpes viruses, uh, we had about 10 of the herpes viruses that we knew of. We had Epstein-Barr, CMV, and then we had varicella, um, you know, zoster, and also we had about oh, seven or eight of the herpes simplexes. I can't remember at that point in time. Now, 20 years later, because that was the 1980s, uh, we have at least 24 varieties of herpes. So if you think we found them all, we haven't. 
And the funny thing about herpes is that they carry, and all viruses, that they carry genetic information. So their purpose is to infect nerve cells and carry their genetic information into them and then to, to uh, or infect immune cells and basically to uh, then reproduce and eventually take over the, the body itself. Mm-hmm. So when we were dealing with uh, nerve inflammation, first of all, nerves are very touchy because they have insulators on them and nerves are electrical wires. And the only way you can make electrical wires not function well is to have them lose their electrical current or to have them uh, have electricity escape to the next wire and not carry electricity very accurately. And the only way that can happen is if we don't have myelin, the little fatty insulator Mm -hmm. of each uh, nerve. And there are some people that don't make myelin and some kids that don't make myelin. They're devastated. That's actually called cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. okay, Uh, for, for lack of a better term. And then the other way is very simple. When, when you get an inflammation in any place in the body, what does it do? It swells. And what does it swell with? Well, it swells with water. So when it swells with water, I want to I say something very simple. Uh, why don't you drop the, bath, uh, the blow dryer in the bathtub? Because water conducts electricity. Mm-hmm. And so really what we were seeing when we initially looked at these problems with nerves is we were seeing electricity that was not being carried very accurately. We saw inflammation on biopsies of nerves. And when we started looking deeper, guess what we found? Viral infections, okay? And those viruses were invariably in the herpes family. And now we also know that the measles and rubella family also love to do that. Now, uh, that just happens to be very coincidental, doesn't it? So when we deal with the live viral vaccines that contain three neurotrophic viruses, Um, in people of immune dysfunction, it should make common sense why we focus on viruses. So if we go in and essentially help the body uh, to attack these viruses and knock their numbers down and then fix the immune system, what, what we ultimately hope to do is to put them back into hibernation. So if I get a varicella vaccine and I have a perfect immune system, that vaccine goes into my nerves and it becomes dormant. And because my immune system's healthy, these viruses have all kinds of clever ways to recognize that. And as long as my immune system's healthy, that virus will stay dormant, possibly the rest of my life, possibly until I'm older and maybe pop out as shingles, Mm -hmm. okay? But for the most part, it will stay dormant. Now, if I put it into a child whose immune system is not healthy, then instead of that virus staying dormant, it will decide to multiply. And what it will do is we'll activate into the, the glial layer, which is the insulin, or excuse me, the myelin-based layer. And then it will divide very quickly and jump back in, and the body tries to attack it with the immune system. But so it picks its time so cleverly and gets away most of the time that you just wind up irritating the nerve. And so we're back to the same premise. Uh, what makes nerves inflamed? Well, viral infection. And it it's so precise when we look at it with our equipment that we can tell you whether your child's going to have a good day or bad day mm-hmm. by looking at a nerve of the ear or, frankly, any of the nerves because when they activate uh, from a systemic problem, they activate in a lot of different nerves. And so our whole premise with treatment for viruses is really pretty simple. When these viruses jump out and try to divide, we just trap them. And so antivirals are immensely safe. In fact, they're one of the few killing medications that are approved for lifelong suppression. Mm -hmm. And we have no intention of using them that way. And I think that there is a potential to develop resistance if we're not careful. Uh, Luckily, so far, it hasn't shown uh, too great a propensity to do that. 
not like the other anti-infectives do. You're talking about for the herpetic viruses, right? For herpetic viruses. Yeah, I was viruses. just reading Tamiflu is um, already... Um, sure. <laughs> or, uh, sorry, H1N1 is already resistant to Tamiflu in yeah. some cases. Now you're talking about the difficult ones, which right. is the RNA viruses. So for the herpes family, our job is just to help the body, eradicate them, fix the immune system, and have them be put back in their place. Now, RNA viruses, a completely different animal. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, unfortunately, the majority of viruses in the world are RNA viruses. And there are some that no matter how hard we treat them, we cannot do flip about them. The easiest example is polio. So from a standpoint of vaccinations, which is a very tough, touchy subject, um, clearly, I think at some point in time, with the hopefully with the immune system as healthy as you can get it, Every child certainly needs a polio vaccine if you live in an area that's at risk for polio. <clears throat> so in Texas in particular, since we're on the Mexican border and, uh, well, and even maybe inherently, we do have polio still around. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think every child needs that. And I don't think they need it at the age we typically give it unless they're in an extremely sensitive uh, exposure area. Uh, now, RNA viruses are unique because the way we uh, interrupt DNA viruses from dividing is when they jump out, we keep them from dividing their DNA so they can't unzip their mm -hmm. DNA. DNA is like a zipper, right. and we have these special enzymes that unzip them, and they divide into two different, um, two different chains of uh, DNA. RNA viruses are not that way. So the only way that we can actually block or hinder RNA viruses from re-entering the cells or from spreading from one cell to the next is by blocking the ability of that virus to attach. Now, the reason viruses know which places to attach, how they know a nerve versus some other form of tissue, is that we have little proteins on the surface that give us specific targets for those viruses to latch onto. So the way that we typically uh, trap RNA viruses outside of the, the infectious uh, site is we just try to coat mm -hmm. those binding sites so that there's nothing for the virus to grab onto and that gives the immune system a better chance. Now, unfortunately, um, measles and influenza tend to love the M receptor, which is the morphine receptor of mm -hmm. the nerve. And so uh, the M receptor is a very touchy animal because anytime you stimulate it, even if you stimulate it minorly, you get a little bit of secondary effect. Now the nice thing with amantadine or a little bit with Tamiflu um, um, and some of the other RNA agents is that they're fairly minor effects, but some of them can actually be beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have some uh, anti-fatigue effects, some anti-dyskinetic, you make more coordinated in your fine motor skills. <clears throat> and sometimes we get into some anti-emotional flux effects. And so I have some parents that once we've used some amantadine in these children, they don't want to ever come off of it yeah. because uh, the children do much better without it. But, you know, invariably we are not believers in long-term medicinals. We like to use medicinals to uh, accomplish a uh, goal and then get them off of them because invariably the body ought to be able to handle a lot better than we can. What would you say um, to this? Because I have a lot of parents that ask about the, or the, um, some of the herbal remedies for viruses. Yeah. Uh, olive leaf extract is one that's sure. commonly used, and people kind of stay on it or have their kids on it year-round. Are those fairly safe? And, and, Very safe. And then what about DNA versus RNA? I mean, are they going to target both? or? 
The hard part is the RNA viruses. Okay. Uh, DNA viruses, um, a lot of the omega-3 fatty acids, uh, uh, monolaurin or lauricidin is mm -hmm. a very good one. Olive leaf extract has some of the um, omega, certain omega-3 fatty acids that are able to effectively target the DNA viruses. Um, lactoferrin's another one that's very good at that. And those are very effective. Now, in my hands, I've used them quite a bit, and they're really more viral static mm -hmm. than they are virucidal, but they're okay. accomplishing the same thing, okay. trying to keep these viruses from re-entering cells. So I think that really when you're dealing with um, more than likely DNA viruses, you uh, can do very well with them with the premise that you're also fixing the immune system at the same right, time. Right, exactly. Well, and I had, mm. a, if you don't mind, I'll thread another parent question here. Um, I've had some parents that have sent emails and questions mm -hmm. to you. Uh, one of them is, do you think it's important to do the quantitative IgG viral titers to know exactly which viruses are high and what are the titers? Well, frankly, um, with the herpes family for the most part, uh, uh, as far as HHV6, HHV1, um, they're worthless. Um, and why I say that is because um, once you're exposed, um, those viruses have a great tendency to not stay in their place, and you can mm -hmm. reactivate and re-stimulate IgG to stay high. So a lot of doctors um, use them to decide whether to treat or not. I'm going to tell you that we've all been exposed. Now, when we're dealing with Epstein-Barr or CMV, now those are not infections that typically infect young children. They typically get into older, but if you start checking those, you will find out that some of these babies have been exposed to Epstein-Barr little bit different animal mm -hmm. but you still in herpes viruses you cannot count quantification of titers as the amount of activity or inactivity of the virus itself now obviously if IgGs start lowering that means you don't have as much activity because IgGs tend to die away over time mm -hmm. now we're talking over several years right. so if you're gonna be checking them regularly you're not gonna be able to judge anything as far as effect so that's why we like to do direct testing on the nervous system itself mm -hmm. so that we can see how much inflammation is really present because titers can't tell you that. Uh, direct testing is real time. Titers are uh, textbook information. Right. You know, right. That's, that's what happened a couple of years ago. Now, um, RNA viral titers, um, pretty much worthless also in that that foundation. Now, I don't say worthless in the fact that you don't you don't want to know that they're there, mm -hmm. and it does give people a lot more comfort when they can see a number. Yeah. But when you're dealing with the nervous system, which is where viruses typically do their harm, checking the nervous system itself is so much more effective and so much more accurate than any blood test will ever be that it just doesn't make common sense to spend a lot of money doing that. And it certainly doesn't change your therapeutic approach. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it's really founded on. Do we do a test just to do it, or we do a test that's going to change the way we treat your child? Now, um, um, so I don't want to sit here and criticize uh, checking titers because really the doctors who have checked all these titers have just uh, verified everything I've been saying for mm -hmm. <laughs> a right. long time. Um, and you know we had them done because I always wanted sure. to have the, well, the number on the paper. Yeah, but you know the whole thing is I always, the analogy I give, and you know I'm a, I love analogies, um, is that uh, 
you know, I usually point to a power cord in the room and I ask the parent, well, is that power cord carrying electricity? And they'll say, well, yeah. And I said, well, how do you know? And they said, well, it's because it's plugged in. And I'm like, well, you're making a bad assumption. What if that switch is not, or what if that plug's not working? And I said, and we certainly can't tell how well a computer's working by looking at the power cord. So that's the difference in looking at that. Now, you've got to also understand that in viruses alone, their whole MO is to escape immune um, detection and killing. Mm -hmm. So for viruses, it's a different animal. So when they are experts at escaping immune detection and escaping immune destruction, the last thing you want to be doing is checking immune markers to find out how effectively you've treated these right, things. Right. Okay? <laughs> now, in everything else, titers work great. For yeast, fantastic. I mean, no way for them to escape. For bacteria, pretty much fantastic. Mm -hmm. No problem with that. Uh, parasites. Yeah, you can see them under the microscope. Yeah, right. <laughs> Usually. So, in general, you just have to understand that this, this concept that I'm preaching about really only pertains to viruses because they have this stealth characteristic. That's really great information to know. Well, I will tell you that um, in, our, in our personal case um, and journey with Jake's healing, uh, the viruses have been very problematic, but, and they're very important uh, for everyone you know about, and you're the expert on the viruses. Um, however, there's something that um, is the, I call the dirty little secret that comes along with a lot of the treatment for these infections. Mm -hmm. And that is um, the problem with candida, or the fungal infections. And they seem to be really problematic in our kids. Um, I can, now that I've seen them so many times over the years, I can spot it immediately. When sure. I see the giggling and the, the rolling on the floor and the lack sure. of focus, I immediately suspect yeast. And um, we do the best we can to watch the sugar, because the sugar feeds the yeast. We've got them on um, a lot of long-term um, anti uh, over the counter or I'm sorry natural antifungals sure. uh, that, you know some of the candesol or candex products but um, one of the things that I'd, I'd like you to talk about is helping us understand um, the fungal infections and why they seem to be so problematic and you know I've, I've also seen that they can flare with the antiviral treatment too yeah um, well yeast are like you said uh, a necessary evil you know we got good yeast in our bowel mm -hmm. and in most cases we harbor bad yeast in our bowel and there's a, when the bowel's immune system is intact and the bowel flora is intact then you you typically have a nice beautiful balance but all too many of us who deal with these children know that the bowel is not a normal place for a lot of these children and um, in general when you have an immune system that's incapable of killing yeast uh, once a yeast uh, gets through an inflammatory area of the bowel or has an environment that it loves to flourish in, it's going to take advantage of it. And so it's probably one of the biggest issues we deal with in these kids. Now, we're lucky that we have a broad range of, of antifungals that can take care of candida. But um, the problem is, is that candida are, are very, very aggressive at um, mutating and avoiding uh, detection or avoiding uh, therapeutic outcome from their treatment mm -hmm. and so practically in my hands uh, nystatin has become kind of worthless uh, 80 percent of communal infections in this region are resistant to nystatin so you might as well take water yeah oh, the, gosh, okay. um, the second is um, 
um, Diflucan, which is my second agent of choice, it does pretty well, but if you have to keep using it recurrently, mm-hmm. you're going to wind up with resistant strains. And then you can go on to Sporanox and even to VFend if you really want to get aggressive. There's lots of ways to go about it, but uh, we're still forgetting um, the major problem here is if we can fix the immune system, mm-hmm. the immune system does a plenty good job of dealing with candida. Now, I never quite understood, um, and please forgive me, the the um, the sugar-feeding yeast concept. And uh, I think it was simplified because it makes sense to a lot of people, but really what happens is high-sugar carbohydrate diets tend to drive acidity in the body, mm-hmm. and acidity is very favorable for yeast production. So instead of yeast actually being fed by sugar, and they, don't get me wrong, they love sugar, but we also are driving this acidic environment. So we've had a lot of benefit in measuring even saliva pHs and mm-hmm. modifying pHs, and you'll find out that a lot of these kids are acidic, highly acidic. Well, and perhaps I have old information, but I remember um, I went to one conference and the speaker was talking about Canada and the fact that with the high sugar diet, the yeast give um, ingest it and give off a byproduct that is similar to an alcohol, Correct. and it helps the kids stay loopy, and Correct. they get addicted to that behavior. They Correct. like to feel giddy and silly, and, you know, it's like being drunk. So right. <laughs> so I think that was some of the early information we had, but having the acidic environment, you're right, really throws everything off. All, and, and then, you know, what's important to mention is the normal, uh, you know, I mentioned to one doctor once at a conference, I said that, you know, my son had gut pathogens. He says, well, not really. He says it's more of a gut dysbiosis where it's the, the healthy bacteria are there. They're just suppressed and the other bacteria are in abnormal amounts. So he says it's more of a dysbiosis where it's not necessarily you've got a lot of pathogens in there. It's just they're in out of balance. Correct. And that's why probiotics are so important with Correct. restoring that, you know, we've got Jake on the biotic boost and he does really well with that because it's the probiotics restoring that you know, that's an interesting point. Uh, go back to the probiotics because uh, one of the greatest medicinals that we can use is probiotics. It doesn't just restore the gut flora like everybody thinks. Um, the lactobacillus and all the probiotic families have very unique properties that can act from everything from virucidal, can actually kill viruses, to anti-infective properties, to chelating properties. And some of the products that or out from a, a naturopathic standpoint, uh, um, like PCARX or PCA3X, uh, are founded on lactobacillus' um, ability to do all these um, tricky um, maneuvers. And so clearly, uh, these favorable bacteria don't just um, take up space that a pathogen wouldn't. What they really do is actually provide an environment that's much more favorable for. Uh, uh, better health, mm-hmm. I guess, is a good way to do it. So we use, you know, we have to remember that the good Lord does this a whole lot better than we do. And the way it's been set up is really important for us to um, to understand the way that uh, it was intended to be. And I think we lose sight of that because we think we have all these, these great medicinal powers. Um, what we've been most successful with, and I keep going back to it, is if we can just find out what the body's missing, put it back in, Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not going to be a hundred things. It's going to be a few precise things. If we can get that back into the child, then the child tends to gravitate toward uh, normal function. Well, um, you mentioned something earlier, and I wanted to go back to it because I, I don't feel I have enough answer behind mm-hmm. this, and that is the die-off. 
um, because as you know, we've uh, on the last show we talked about Jake with the pandas, and we've successfully treated that with the antibiotic. Uh, we followed up with the diflucan because he did end up with yeast. Sure. Um, and I've had a lot of parents say, oh, well, make sure you, you take care of the die-off and mop up those, the, I guess, the byproduct of the mm -hmm. pathogens you just killed. Um, and we're using the Toxiclear, mm -hmm. the bentonite clay, just to sure. help clear it out. Is, are we on the right track? Um, you know, um, from a Herxheimer's or a die-off reaction, it's really not a clearance issue to me as much as it is an immune stimulation issue. You know, yeast in particular, uh, and bacteria too, but yeast are very large cells. And so what happens that, that the agents that we use that are prescriptive, like diflucan, et cetera, um, are yeastcidal. So what they do is they rupture the yeast. And when you got this big cell full of all kinds of material and you rupture it open, you've just sent all kinds of antigenic immune-stimulating material into the bloodstream, mm -hmm. into the gut, into everywhere else. And, and the body's going to start reacting like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the immune system's going to overreact to all this material. So when the yeast is intact, it only gets it only sees the surface. But when you rupture it open, it sees all the contents. And if you rupture it too fast, you're going to have an explosive, explosive uh, sickness in some of these kids. Yeah, this is actually, I've heard this recently. Um, a lot of my friends are doing the biofilm protocol sure. uh, by Dr. Usman. Oh boy, which, there you go, exactly. You know, it, really good protocol, but you've got to be very careful on the die-off because uh, some of the kids can get worse in the die-off phase of that whole Sure, protocol. so the way we protect from that, we usually will use a little, you know, this whole T-cell dysfunction, B-cell skewing, you've got overactive B-cells, mm -hmm. so they're already primed for explosiveness. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you provide an ability like in the biofilm protocol or an ability in a treating yeast or certain bacteria, it doesn't happen with viruses too much because they're so small, but um, you then provide with a big antigenic stimulation and uh, you'll put some of these kids in the hospital. I mean, it's that bad sometimes. So in general, I'll tell you that uh, the way we usually protect from it is to try to use just a teeny amount of steroid, usually just a little bit of hydrocortisone or solucortef, to just kind of take the edge off the B cells just slightly. Now you mm -hmm. can't get containment of them. Steroids right. don't work as a right. long-term effect, but you can kind of take the edge off and lessen the Herxheimer's activity. Uh, a lot of people get scared because they're like, why would I want to take an immune depressed child and, and uh, give them steroids? Cause that would be further immune suppressing. And it's because they really don't quite understand the immune system there's one side that's not working well there's another side that's working way too well yeah they're in constant inflammation so steroids like. treat the inflammatory mm -hmm. overactive side right. and so they can be quite useful in those situations the other way is just to not overdo it with the amount of the medication you're using right right so i would caution you and i certainly am not an expert in the biofilm protocol uh, i think it makes perfect sense um i certainly believe that uh, you probably should be cautious and like I told you in my early days of treating these kids if anything I was too aggressive mm -hmm. and I've kind of learned to go low and slow because one thing about the brain and the immune system is they don't like rapid changes they like slow methodical organized changes so when you explosively change something in the body I, don't, I would venture to say none of us really like that well, I think that's a really important point to make, um, and I'll tell you from a parent perspective, I have not agreed with you on that because I want my son to be healed tomorrow. And if you tell me we're going to be doing this protocol for six months or 12 months, 
and I'm already an impatient person, sure. I say, you know, Dr. Stewart, that's just not fast enough for me. Right. But you're right. Our kids don't react well when you try to rush it. And I can recall when we first started seeing you, I remember we did introduce a lot of things very quickly, and we saw regression. And that's when I was calling your office saying, sure. oh, I don't know about this. And it was because he just, you know, had been so long without having anything. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're giving him supplements, and I put him on the diet. And, you know, when I look back on that time, I was very impatient. I wanted him to be well, and I was, I was really uh, a little overzealous, and, or a lot overzealous. <laughs> and the other, the other thing there was, um, when people would ask me, well, you know, and he, when he did start to recover, you know, we had the regression for three months, and then we saw these immediate gains. I mean, we saw speech and words coming out that right. he had never said. But I remember um, when pe people said to me, well, so Lisa, what did you do that made Jake? recover and I'm thinking and I'm looking at my spreadsheet of all the things we were doing I said well you know I can't really tell you we're doing this supplement and that supplement and this antiviral and you know you have to really stop and slow down and say if you did it all at once and something works great but you don't know which one it was and the same flip side if you see regression you don't know from which thing you introduced well, it's, and it's not going to be one thing that's right. the problem with these kids and so there are parents who want to do that. And I'm saying, okay, well, we can do it any way you want to, but these are this is the environment we've set up, and if we don't accomplish these things in a reasonable time frame, we'll lose our opportunity. Right. And the other response I'd have to that is you can go fast, but you're the one that has to live with it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's all I've got to say. And so really it's not me I, I would go fast that's great you know mm -hmm. if i see massive fast changes i'm high-fiving myself you yeah. know uh, but unfortunately i got a parent who is not very pleased with right the, the what's going on so you know in general i think that we just have to understand that um there's a there's another issue that i think we ought to talk about it in the herxheimer's issue if you have a child who is prone to recurrent herxheimer's issues and you can't really help them with a little bit of steroid during the the killing effect then there is an occasional child and sometimes we deal with this in adults in particular that we have to back off and fix the immune system first to prepare them for the killing because it's the immune skewing that gives us so much trouble mm -hmm. so if we can improve the b cells so sometimes we have to give these kids specialized b vitamin injections and some more vitamin D and get them loaded up for two or three weeks before we ever introduce an uh, anti-infective agent. And actually, uh, that's kind of a good segue, if you don't mind, into sure. um, into our um, our summary on uh, just healing the, the immune system. And, and I wanted to also make this a dialogue because these are some of the things that we did with Jake. Sure. Um, so getting him ready to receive the anti-infectives or whatever protocol you were going to be using um, you said let's heal the gut so mm -hmm. we did we put him on the diet but before we actually we were already on the GFCF diet but before we really looked into all of the restriction we did the food allergy testing to see what mm -hmm. were his allergies and intolerances and once we navigated through that we found the foods that we needed to avoid and then started him on the probiotics and mm -hmm. that made a world of difference and then we also um, started the um, omega fatty acids which was really important um, and I know that you've said this before that they're anti-inflammatories and we're right. recently um, well before the pandas we were trying the curcumin we've scaled back on that because again too much too soon right but um, and then um, also the glutathione was really important and, and you listed you've listed for me um, many things that help raise glutathione but can you touch on the glutathione 
a little more for us to understand how that's sure. so critical to the immune system? Well, you know, certainly um, glutathione is important in many facets. It's Glutathione is the protein, and it's a small little protein, three amino acids, that is involved in uh, essentially helping the body clear toxins, clear heavy metals, and also control inflammation. And glutathione is, uh, has uh, disulfhydryl groups on it, which are just sulfur molecules, and that's why it smells so bad. Yes, okay. it does. Um, that are able to bind uh, certain um, negative chemicals and negative uh, heavy metals that get into the body so that we can make them water-soluble again and get them back out of the body. And so, in general, uh, glutathione is very important. And then the methylation pathway that most people will be familiar with uh, eventually, if they're not now already, you know, the endpoint is glutathione. Uh, well, the endpoint's probably metallothionine, but glutathione makes metallothionine. And in general, uh, if we can't have that pathway working well, we're going to be deficient in it. Now, there's nothing better than the body's natural mechanism. Okay, so we can use other chelating agents. We can use other toxic clearance assistants. But if we could just get glutathione in the right concentrations in the body, we'd do well. Now, there are a lot of my colleagues who um, feel that there are specific ways that we have to put glutathione in the body. Uh, clearly, if you take it orally without any special method, you're going to break down that glutathione into its constituent amino acids. So you're not going to absorb glutathione. Okay. You're just going to absorb the amino acids that make glutathione. There also is transdermal, and there are some people that absorb transdermal very well, and some people that for some reason don't absorb it very well. And I think that's true, and that's uh, kind of an enigma sometimes to understand why. And then clearly there are doctors who say IV is the only way to go because you can ensure that it gets in. And that's probably true, but it also is, I think, a touchy subject with a, a lot of uh, classic medical people and a touchy subject when you're dealing with children. And I know it is in the state of Texas. And so it, it becomes a little bit of a, a hot button for how to get this in. Now, the way that we've been utilizing lately is a new technique uh, with liposomal glutathione, and that was developed uh, by a gentleman out in Palo Alto, uh, California. And what he was able to do was to take pure soybean oil, so it is not soy protein, it's mm -hmm. soybean oil, so it doesn't have a soy reactivity right. to it. He's able to essentially create a micro bubble and actually take the glutathione molecule, the entire glutathione protein, and introduce it into the micro bubble. And because soybean oil is fat-soluble, once it gets into the gut, the body absorbs the whole uh, bubble. And so that's been a very effective way for us. Now, it's not delicious. Well, actually, it's working. We've been on it for a couple <laughs> weeks, and we disguise it in orange juice. It seems to be working. That's great. I can't and stand it's, it. And it smells better than the transdermal creams. It does. And That's in true. The, in 105 degree weather in Texas, he really didn't like the cream anyway on his back. <laughs> well, and so I, I certainly agree with that. Now, ultimately, uh, putting glutathione in the body is is great, and I don't think there'd be anybody with with knowledge on the subject that would disagree with it. Uh, but what I will clearly tell you is our ultimate goal is to find out what's keeping the body from making its own glutathione. Right. If we can re restart that, then these kids ought to take care of themselves, and that's the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. So I am not a big fan of IV therapeutics in these kids, but that doesn't mean I'm going to criticize it. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
I think it's also specific from the kid and the parent and how comfortable you feel. And certainly I'm not going to be criticizing my colleagues who do it. But I think, you know, we've had this great success with the liposomal glutathione. And, and actually we're evaluating quite a few of the liposomal products. Yeah, there's some some really promising technology. That's a promising technology for a lot of for delivery oh, of a I lot think of different so. things. And I think even with the B vitamins and other mm-hmm. things, that's going to be very very uh, complementary to our care. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we're still doing um, some of the supplements to help increase glutathione naturally. So, like you Correct. said, helping the body to raise it naturally with the MB12 and folic acid. Um, and then you also talked to us about detoxification, and we've done that since day one with you mm-hmm. with the, the zinc, and we do a high dose of vitamin C. We use uh, the TMG. So we've used a lot of the ones you've recommended for, uh, and we really do that daily, you know, just a daily detox. And um, we're not talking about chelation today because chelation is actually the subject for our next radio okay, show in September. Great. So we'll be talking all about, I'm sorry, not chelation, but heavy metals in chelation. So we'll oh, be talking okay. about how metals affect um, our kids. So that was kind of a nice segue for our next show. Okay. And um, with that, we're just about out of time. And um, I wanted to thank our listeners again for listening to the show and remind everyone that you can send us questions via email to questions at drkendallstewart.com. And we will answer those in the September broadcast. So with that, thank you, Dr. Stewart. Thank you very much, Lisa. Mm -hmm.